Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. So today we have crowdsourced topics on Ask Dr. Dawn. Uh, Later on, we'll have a discussion of uh, the latest infringement on women's rights. In 38 states, I can open carry a gun, but in 26 states, I won't be able to very soon get an abortion. That's just crazy. Let's go to our first email. This comes from Richard in Michigan. Uh, Richard writes, intermittent fasting and time of day. Dear Dr. Don, I work during the day. I find breakfast to be rushed and not satisfying always. I prefer waiting until after work, having a snack and cooking an enjoyable portion controlled meal. This feels satisfying to me. Some articles I read suggest it might be better to eat in the morning instead. I'd like to hear what you have to say about this. Well, Richard, I, I kind of agree with you and... Uh, yet, from the standpoint of personal preference, but I also have to tell you the science doesn't agree with either of us. So it is best to go to bed empty. And uh, a two-hour uh, a two hour of nothing solid, nothing with calories before going to bed is kind of a good health minimum, both because it reduces the chances that you're going to have reflux and give yourself esophageal cancer over oh, say, 50 years of doing that. But also, there's increased benefit. And the reason there's increased benefit is something called autophagy, or autophagy, depending on how you want to pronounce it. What is that? Well, of course, our cells have trash collectors, and they go through our bodies and clean out debris. But some of that debris, well, it's not actually quite debris. It's something that you might need in case you went on a fast or were starving. So the body doesn't really put it away uh, right away. It gets rid of the toxins and moves on to other obvious things to dispose of, but it leaves a lot of shelf a lot of stuff on the shelf, included misfolded proteins and stuff you probably should get rid of. Autophagy is going to occur when there are leftovers, but there's nothing in the cupboard that's fresh. So if you're constantly eating, you never really do good autophagy. And if you eat right before bedtime, you never get around to getting rid of those edible, but maybe kind of stale things. If you fast, even a fast as short as 12 to 14 hours, you start to run out of fuel. And the uh, the uh, endosomes and the cytosomes that are whose j- lysosomes and all these other zomes whose job it is to clean up uh, are done. You know, they're like, well, what else can I find to do here? And also you're hungry. So at that moment, you start taking these kind of not great proteins, these not entirely healthy cells, and you start breaking them down for spare parts, just like getting that motorcycle that doesn't run anymore, but it's got, you know, parts that you could use because it's the same as your motorcycle. Well, the the body starts dismantling the debris and getting rid of it, 
burning it for fuel. And this also has an effect of reducing the insulin resistance. The body is scavenging, and as it scavenges, it turns on back on those insulin receptors. So if you eat right before bedtime and you don't get good autophagy, you actually have a much higher risk of diabetes. So you're actually kind of shooting yourself in the foot with not eating all day when you're up and moving, and then eating a big meal, like a snack while you cook dinner. And it's hard. I agree. That's an easy lifestyle. I don't know how much flexibility you have, but I have some, you know, if you were sitting across from me in my office, I would say, hmm, well, what about changing your lunch hour? What about eating? What about working through lunch and uh, bringing your dinner in and having it then? Or what about eating a late lunch uh, that you bring in that is effectively the dinner, the, ch- the main heavy caloric meal that you're going to be eating that day. And try to e- eat your last bit of food more than five hours before bedtime. So depending upon what time you go to bed, that just might mean 6 p.m. for an 11 o'clock bedtime. But if you could make that 5 p.m. for that dinner, then you'd be in really good shape. If you just can't do it, then eat a big lunch, and in the evening, have a light meal. And I mean light. So vegetable soup, we'll get to why that would be a good idea, uh, or a salad. Keep the starch down, minimal starch at night, and that could work if you just can't manage the ideal because, hey, you've got to, got to live. But I know once I have the flexibility to do this in my life, I'm going to be eating around 5 o'clock at night and going to bed around midnight, and that's going to do me some good. You know, a light salad with just vinaigrette or something, that's not really enough calories to interfere with that if you need to just, if you're starting to feel empty. A little bit of vegetable soup, that's very low calorie. Uh, consomme, broth, things like that, you're still good. And that may be all you need if you start feeling a little calorie deprived. But those late night snacks, they're hell on your insulin resistance. Our next email comes from Peggy in Long Island. Uh, Peggy writes, powdered power grains. Hi, Dr. Don. I enjoy listening to your archived recordings and truly appreciate all that you do. As I continue my quest for improved health, I have made many positive lifestyle changes in the last 10 months, including, check this out, walking, rowing, weights, Zumba, yoga, as well as eating high-fiber, low-carb, no-sugar diet. Wow, I don't know what, what road to Damascus moment you had, Peggy, but go you. For months now, I have been also mixing powdered greens with water and drinking it first thing every morning. I considered these greens to be, as you often say, can't hurt, might help. But I wonder what your thoughts are on these products. Researching what brands are best is tough because there's so much sponsored content. But I know you'd provide me with the most honest assessment regarding their benefits and what to look for in choosing a brand. Okay. Well, I am not in, uh, since I'm not being paid... And this is uh, free speech at its finest community uh, sourced variety. I carry a line of products in my office, which I sell for basically less than a retail market 
and I pay the sales tax because I don't want a conflict of interest, just saying, uh, by a company called Da Vinci, and they make uh, a they make a freeze-dried fruit and vegetable powder. In fact, they make three. One's kind of berry-heavy, and one's kind of carotenoid-heavy, and one's kind of greens-heavy. And these have a very high ORAC content. And what on earth is that? Well, you want to look for no added sugar. You want to look for a high ORAC content. It should be the equivalent of at least 10 fruits, servings of fruits and vegetables per uh, per serving that you're eating. And by the way, these are freeze-dried and then pulverized. So realistically, all the moisture's gone. And so it isn't all that bulky because I'm remembering an old Star Trek from the original Star Trek where they had somebody had this ray and they pointed it at the crewman. It was the red shirt guy, of course. And they shrank him to a little like three by three Rubik's Cube size thing. And then they pushed a button on the ray and hit it again and uh, brought the person back to life. Actually, there were two people, and they brought one back, and then just to show how bad they were, they crushed up the other one and basically crushed the guy in his hands, and he couldn't be reconstituted properly. But fortunately for us, the molecules in these green powders can be used by your body, and so no worries there. OREC stands for Oxygen Radical Absorption Capacity, and uh, that's turning out to be an extremely important thing. Now, free radicals you've heard about if you're a regular listener and have checked out those archives. And these are like little sparks that hit other molecules and break other free radicals off. So it's a bit like a a nuclear chain reaction when the free radical storm gets going. And they hit DNA, which is not good. So this just came out. uh, Well, actually, it's a little old. It's, I take it back. This is from the archives of the FDA, and it's talking about a research on ORAX and how they slow aging. And so here's what we know about this, gosh, 20 years ago. We know that you eating plenty of high ORAC foods raises the antioxidant power of your blood by 10 to 25%. So one serving of this stuff is going to do that. Uh, It did some interesting things in rats, and this has been uh, also shown in humans. If you're a diabetic, you should definitely be using this because insulin causes uh, damage to the capillaries. Blood sugar causes, high blood sugar does as well. And microcapillary damage is where all of these complications, the vision issues, the kidney issues that we see and diabetes are, and you can undo some of this by getting your free radical content higher. So what does it take? Well, uh, if you have a 15%, uh, you'll get a 15% increase in the antioxidant power of your blood by simply doubling your daily fruit and vegetable intake compared to what you did before. And so these fruits and vegetable powders are doing more of this. Uh, here's one that was really interesting. They fed rats daily doses of blueberry extract, and then they put them in an oxygen, a pure oxygen environment, which normally really damages the lungs. And in the and they get pleural effusions and pulmonary edema. The rats who got the blueberry extract were protected against this lung damage. 
and they also were looking at spinach powder or and they found that that prevented some of the long-term memory loss that you see uh, in rats and they also showed uh, that it was very protective for uh, brain cells in general. So what are your highest Orax fruits? And this is for about three and a half ounces. Uh, well, the winner is prunes at 57.70, uh, dried prunes. Raisins actually come in a close second uh, at 28.30 uh, Orac units. Blueberries, 2,400. So blueberries, blackberries, strawberries, and raspberries, plums, oranges, grapes, cherries, kiwis, grapefruit, reading it down. And on the vegetables, well, we all know kale, right? Kale is at, kale and spinach are at the top of the list, but br- coming right up behind them closely are Brussels sprouts, uh, alfalfa sprouts, and broccoli flowers, That those baby broccoli, broccolini things. Uh you also got beets, red bell peppers, onions, not so bad, uh, but you're better off with uh, the ones I've already listed in choosing your foods. And I want to add, you can actually, you can game the vegetables that you eat with food. So if you're having, let's say, barbecue, which is going to have burnt sugar on it, that's very pro-oxidant. So what you would want to do in that circumstance is you'd want to pair it with maybe some maybe a kale salad if you don't dislike kale or spinach spinach and barbecue maybe some roasted brussels sprouts i'm getting hungry anyway the point here is that just eating some beet salad along with your barbecue might substantially reduce the free radicals that you generate when you eat it and how cool is that our next one, right on the subject of free radicals, is uh, about how air pollution causes lung cancer. Now, up until recently, this just came out April 5th in Nature, so this is new information. Back in 1999, we thought the free radicals were mainly damaging DNA, and it's true, they do. But not all carcinogens mutate DNA. Some of them, particularly the small particles that are found in air pollution, uh, are acting on a completely different mechanism. You guessed it, inflammation. That old inflammation has me in its spell, that inflammation that I know so well. Those red heart particles, they make me react. My immune system goes on the attack. So this group, led by Charles Swenson, uh, Swanton, excuse me, at the Francis Crick Institute in London, looked at epidemiological and environmental data from the United Kingdom, Canada, South Korea, and Taiwan. And they focused on lung cancers that carried mutations in a gene called EGFR. That's, uh, epi- that's epithelial growth factor. And that epithelial growth factor gene, well, that's skin lining. And what they found was that if you carry an EGFR mutation, your lungs are going to be much more susceptible uh, to getting cancer when you inhale these 2.5 micrometer particles. You know, the 2.5 microns, that's what we were paying attention to. That's what the, uh, that's what the air filters are supposed to remove. That's 
one-tenth the width of an average grain of pollen. Compared to a virus, pollens are big. And this is what you get from combustion. About three years ago in my area, we had a, well, not even quite, two and a half. We had the big, 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 big forest fire. And it was surreal. I think we can all agree that. But fires are going to be a feature of life in California as well as other places. And air pollution is a feature of life, particularly if you live in cities. These small particles are emitted by diesel engines. So if you live anywhere near a road that has a lot of truck traffic, you're going to have more of these 2.5 micrometer particles in your immediate environment. And the Swanton Group found what's going on here is that the particles cause a sustained inflammatory response. In other words, the immune system is activated uh, and they are expressing a protein called interleukin-1-beta. You may remember that from COVID. That was the cytokine storm chemical. So if you gave, if you give mice an uh, an anti-IL-1-B antibody, you can reduce their lung cancer risk, which is substantial. And when they look at aging in humans, what they find is the longer you live, the more mutations you get in this EGFR. So just about all of us have this. In fact, when they looked at uh, non-cancerous lung tissues and looked for mutations, this is in humans who had had surgery for benign uh, tumors and had part of their lungs removed. When they looked in the quote-unquote healthy lung tissue, about one in every 600,000 cells had this mutation, making them especially vulnerable to air pollution. So basically, they went, they've went. they gone on and tested other known hum- or suspected human carcinogen and found that many of them don't increase the number of DNA mutations directly. They also work by this IL-1-beta uh, mechanism. That means the standard for determining if something is safe the Ames test, where you essentially take the, co- the compound and put it on cell culture and look for mutations. And if you don't see mutations, it passes the Ames test. Well, with all respect to uh, Dr. Bruce Ames, who was a, a true pioneer in science, that Ames test is not enough. So what can you do? And to end, this article ends with the researcher saying, Uh, Simple dietary interventions that combat inflammation and reduce free radicals might be a way to reduce the risk of some cancers. So what would be those dietary factors? Well, I just listed a bunch of them for you, and that also includes, pulling back to Peggy, that includes Peggy's question about the ORAC content. Our next email comes from Sam in Missouri. We are getting around today, aren't we? I love it. Adult MMR vaccine. Could you talk about what adults, if any, might need an MMR vaccine? I was born in the late 50s, and I'm not sure what vaccines or diseases I had as a child. I assume I would have gotten whatever the standard vaccines recommendations were at the time. And yes, Sam, you probably did. The question is whether or not you actually had the measles. And so uh, let's just say that if you had the measles and the mumps, 
you probably do not need to get a vaccine as an adult. And you're right at that late 1950s where you might very well have gotten both measles and mumps in childhood because these are both very contagious. In fact, measles is one of the most contagious diseases that humans have ever faced. So let's do a little history lesson on the topic of measles. It first shows up in the literature back in the 9th century by a Persian physician. By the way, in case you don't know, in the 9th and 10th century, uh, basically Iran and the Middle East was where it was at for advanced science and advanced mathematics because they didn't have a dark ages. They just kept on keeping on and built on what the Romans left them. Well, We know it was in Persia, and we know that by the 16th century, it was all over Europe. Uh, And in 1757, Scottish doctor Francis Home discovered that measles was caused by a pathogen. They weren't sure what it was, could have been an evil humor, but he transmitted the disease to healthy individuals using the blood of infected patients. Therefore, I presume those were captured prisoners. given the fact that they <laughs> that he infected healthy people, uh, definitely before human subjects committees. But there are, in history, major, major epidemics that just wipe out isolated communities. Happened in the Faroe Islands in 1846, happened in Hawaii in 1848, and Fiji, and etc., and etc., because isolated populations have no opportunity to to develop immunity, so it goes through like wildflower, wildfire. Now, if you're well-nourished, you have a good chance of surviving measles unless you're very young. And, of course, antibiotics don't help with the virus, but most people who die of the measles die of either the pulmonary complications, that is to say getting a secondary bacterial pneumonia, which does respond to antibiotics, or getting encephalitis, which is swelling of the brain uh, that results in brain damage. It can also affect hearing or vision and death. And this was going on in the United States. Just a quick little story. It's about 1932, 33, and my mom gets measles. And prior to that, her nickname had been Billy Goat because she climbed on everything and jumped off of it. Uh, That was my mom until she got the measles. She got the encephalitis. She had high fevers. She was delirious. Uh, She was in bed for at least two or three weeks on the edge of not making it through. And after that, she had serious problems with her eyes, what she she had serious problems with her balance, and she suffered all her life with not being able to see well and not being able to balance herself. She never could ride a bicycle. She had trouble running, and this is as, as a, a young child. She was extremely, uh, and as she grew older, my mother never drove. She never could handle being in a moving vehicle and coordinating her vision because of the brain damage she sustained from measles. Now, she lived a full and happy life, but living in L.A. and not being able to drive for her, for her most of her life was not exactly easy. Globally, about 30 million cases of measles and over 2 million deaths occur each year. So where did we get that vaccine? 
Well, it happens in 1954, and now we get it's germane to your question there. Uh, there was a measles outbreak at a boarding school just outside Boston, and it gave an opportunity for the doctors at Boston's children to go and get some measles virus. So they took throat swabs and blood samples from all the poor infected kids, and a doctor named Thomas Peebles swabbed an 11-year-old schoolboy named Dave, David Edmonston, uh, and this successfully led to the virus's cultivation and enabled doctors to create the first vaccine against measles. Uh, Peebles' boss, essentially the head researcher, well, you know how it goes, the grad students do the work and the head researcher gets on the paper, is known as the father of modern vaccines. Uh, he developed the, the measles vaccine from the Edmondson B strain and uh, named after little David. And that was used and continues to be used as the basis for live attenuated vaccines. So first, they developed some vaccines. They tested them from 1958 uh, to 1960 in small groups. Uh, and then in 1960, they began large trials in thousands of children in New York City and Nigeria. Simultaneously, I might add, in 1961, it was hailed as 100% effective, and the first measles vaccine was licensed in 1963. Late 50s, you would have been somewhere between three and six, and you would have gotten this vaccine when you went to school, uh, assuming that you weren't way off. If you were in the United States and you were attending public school, you did receive the first vaccination. And that was the old vaccine. It had more side effects. Mass vaccination programs took place across the United States, and this is this is before people are that anti-vaccine. Uh, now, in 1968, uh, Dr. Maurice Hillman figured out how to attenuate the vaccine and reduce the side effects, and he just passed it through fertilized chicken eggs 40 times. It made it weaker, but not, uh, well, still working quite well. And... Uh, in 1971, they combined it with the measles, with measles, measles, they combined measles with mumps and rubella. So now we've got the MMR. And then in 2005, we added varicella, chickenpox to that. So now that's our vaccine that's used, although you can still find standalone vaccine, measles vaccine in some countries. But we recommend giving that vaccination at nine months for babies uh, and in areas where measles are epidemic, and 15 months in other areas. So basically, then comes 1998, when a fraudulent research paper, widely now debunked, uh, asserted a link between the MMR vaccine and autism, and we're off to the races. Now, measles still continues to be very, very, very infectious, and you need 95% immunity in the population. There was a brief shining moment back there, uh, in 2016, before the whole Wakefield thing really got rolling, and uh, we were measles-free in North and South America. But two years later, that was lost to a measles outbreak and in another country, spread to the United States, and now we estimate that in the last 20 years, we've prevented 31 million deaths, but we are still having people claiming that this vaccine is not safe and not effective or asserting that it has mercury in it, which it doesn't. 
We're through the bottom of the hour and climbing to the top. So let me just start with uh, some comments about the big breaking news this week in medicine, which is the imminent uh, outlawing of chemical abortion, or at least uh, that's a possibility. Uh, It's making me just a little bit crazy. And not just crazy, but tired. Uh, I have a colleague from training who flies out to Kansas once a month to do abortions. Look it up. Kansas is this little island surrounded by shark-infested waters. My friend's worried. She's ris- she feels she might be risking her life, but she does it anyway. When I asked her about that, she said, my children are grown, as if that was... All she needed to say. I'm remembering a very famous line from uh, World War II, from from the Nazi fascist period. First they came for the doctors. Then they came for Roe v. Wade and stacked the Supreme Court with conservative Catholics. Then they came for our drugs. They really had to hunt for a venue where they could be sure they'd get a conservative judge, a specific anti-abortion judge. And they found one area in Texas where there's only one district judge, Amarillo. Matthew Kazmarek, a name that will live in infamy in my book. So we can't restrict guns, but we can overrule the FDA. I'm so tired of playing 3D chess. And this one is personal for me, folks. I had an abortion. I was a pre-medical student. I had a contraceptive failure. Back when a woman with kids, no matter how smart she was, had a snowball's chance in hell of getting into medical school. There were five women in the class of 100 the year before me. So, information is power, sisters. Let's talk about chemical abortion, and let's talk about what's going on with this. And by the way, I'm sure you've heard about mifepristone, which is going to no longer be available uh, in many states. And we have dueling judges now where we've got the Texas judge saying it's illegal and uh, giving an injunction in its use. And then we have another judge, I think, in Massachusetts who said the opposite. I'm sorry, I don't remember where the second judge is. States like New York and California are stocking up on uh, on this agent. They're stocking up on mifepristone because it uh, might be hard to get. Uh, Govern- Governor Newsom a few days ago said that California has made plans to secure an emergency stockpile of 2 million pills of this stuff. And... Right now, they have 250,000 of them already on hand. It costs them about $100,000 to buy them, so that's not very expensive, is it? This will cover 12,000. But the way we currently do uh, abortions, chemical abortions, is we, we give two drugs. And one of these drugs is used to halt, if you will, the cut, cut the roots, so to speak, of the d- 
developing fetus. And so what the, or embryo rather, because we're, we're doing embryos for chemical abortions. They really aren't uh, useful after 49 uh, to 63 days. And any time after 50 days from the last menstrual period, you're kind of pushing it. And we're, we're down to 200 milligrams of mifepristone, usually given orally. Uh, and then after that, you take either vaginal or buccal misoprostol. And misoprostol is a prostaglandin drug. Prostaglandins are what give you cramping, right? And that's why you take anti-prostaglandins when you've got menstrual cramps. Well, if you use something that gives you cramping and you've already cut the roots of the gestation, then it comes out and you get bleeding, fairly heavy bleeding. And usually four to 14 days later, we bring the woman back and do an ultrasound and make sure that it's been successful. Success rates, by the way, range from about 95% to 98. Usually the, uh, the, uh, Failure from ongoing pregnancy is about 1%. So about 1% of the time we have to send the woman for a physical abortion, either a vacuum, usually a vacuum abortion. But you can just monitor blood tests too, and the great majority of times this uh, works. It's uh, got an estimated completion rate of two per, uh, uh, sorry, it's, it's safe. Its complication rate is 2 per 1,000, and the complications are usually heavy bleeding. If you do just the second drug, the mistoprostol, that's the, the prostaglandin analog, which they're trying to, uh, they're going to have a harder time getting rid of this one because this is used for a lot of other purposes that are medically necessary and they're really, really, really going to have problems with that one. Uh, this drug is also available as Cytotec. Uh, Cytotec is mis- misoprostol, and all by itself, inducing that cramping can cause a miscarriage. It has a 90% effectiveness rate. When you combine the two, you're up to 99%. The one that got outlawed is what gives you that extra 10%. But 90% is still way better than nothing. And so they're going after the second one. The second drug is has been used all over for this, per- purses, this purpose as an isolated drug because you can buy this at a pharmacy in a country that doesn't allow abortion. And it's a combination of, an, of a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory and this misoprostol because it keeps you from getting ulcers when you take your non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. So the combo drug's been around for many, many years. And this is it and this is an effective agent if you take a big enough dose of it. Uh, I'm not going to be giving out recipes here on the air, but I do want to point out some of the other uses of this agent. Uh, for one thing, it's used for before you do procedures. So, for example, if a woman needs a, hist- a hysteroscopy where you take a periscope and look in their uh, uterus, if they need an endometrial biopsy where you tissue sample them, or even an IUD insertion, you can give this agent 
and it softens the cervix. It makes it softer and it's easier to get stuff through. Obviously, this is a, this is also released at high levels or the analog, that particular prostaglandin E is released when you're going into, when you're ready to go into labor. And one of the things we are doing when you get up to the, uh, when you show up in labor is we're checking to see if your cervix is ripe, if we can let you push, if you're softening up, or if we're thinking, oh, we better give you something so we don't need to do a C-section. So that's a standard approach uh, during labor. And it's also used for the management of miscarriage because it helps complete things. It's used in postpartum hemorrhage. So it prevents and treats if the uterus isn't cramping down enough after you remove the placenta, you can give this agent, and it's life-saving. And it's also oral, so it doesn't go bad and you don't need to give it IV. So it's something that midwives in a lot of the world carry around. And I might add, it's pretty cheap. I looked up the price uh, for a dose that would uh, allow you to do uh, three abortions if you were just trying to use this drug. It runs about $80. Uh, it does require a physician's prescription, but you probably could get most doctors to write it for you. And so my question is, how long is it going to take them to go after this? Uh, I do want to point out that there is a drug widely used for uh, psoriasis called methotrexate. That's also a treatment for ectopic pregnancy because it stops the pregnancy. Uh, I won't, it is not currently used uh, for the purpose of causing an abortion, but I'm just, okay, so now we've got three drugs that theoretically at least could be used to promote abortion, and we're going after the one that doesn't have any other medical indications. Uh, the two, the other two on the table would work. But they also have all of these other, first of all, you know, we're talking 20 or 30 year track record for these agents. So they're really safe. We know what we're doing with them. They've been approved as safe and effective by the FDA. And what's going to happen now is that the Supreme Court, I will say a little bit of a stacked court, is eventually going to see a case where they get to decide whether a district judge in Texas can trump the FDA. And if that happens, and the FDA is no longer the guardian of our health and safety, but is it, and it's, and whether or not we get a drug, is it, we're at the mercy of uh, courts, a court in Amarillo or wherever. It, is it just me or has the whole world gone crazy? This is just plain nuts. Looking for my next story here that I had lined up. Here it is, microbiome and atopic dermatitis. Now, that's eczema. Uh, atopic derm- dermatitis is an allergic reaction on the skin. It's red. It's itchy. Lots of babies have it. And we're beginning to learn how we can weaponize the microbiome, giving prebiotics to change the bacteria that are living on our skin. Now, it's, it's, I'm going to simplify it, and it's, of course, <laughs> more complicated than this, but we're supposed to have a lot of a type of staph 
aureus called Staphylococcus epidermidis. And if you get staph, a lot of staph aureus on your skin, you're definitely more likely to get atopic dermatitis, an itchy eczema-like rash on your skin. And so we've always known that if you use uh, moisture or lubrication, that helps. And we haven't really understood why, but it turns out that moist, that skin moisturizers, most of the ones that you might buy, like CeraVe or uh, probably, you know, even Jergens, contain specific prebiotics for, uh, for the good skin bacteria. Also, a vino bath, colloidal oatmeal, directly supports the growth of staph epidermidis. And this is like the old-fashioned, old, old-fashioned treatment that we've given for itchy uh, skin in kids. It also enhances the production of lactic acid, so it reduces, it makes the environment less hospitable to the staph aureus. And so using moisturizers in infants who have a high risk of developing this is a really good idea. Uh, another study just came out on the on the line of microbiomes in the skin. Uh, researchers evaluated the safety and use of you giving yourself topical bacteria, a specific bacteria called Roseomonas mucosa, and uh, what they found was significant decreases in disease severity, less use of steroids, and fewer Staph aureus. So just this bacteria, just like lactobacillus and bifidobacterium in the gut, this one is acting on the skin to prevent the growth of adverse bacteria. They also have been using uh, antibacterial creams for a long, long time for this purpose, but the problem with most of them is that they trigger irritation, and so they haven't been very successful. But a recent study used good old lactobacillus for 56 days on the tr- on people with atopic dermatitis, and they found a substantial improvement. And this was cool. They treated one arm with the stuff and one arm with placebo. And so the treatment arm got a lot better. Well, that essentially controls for things like moisture in the environment, humidity in the household, frequency of bathing, choice of bath and body products, all of the variables that make it hard to do science on free-range humans. The only variable they have to worry about is the person getting the two biles uh, mixed up, and hopefully they were labeled right arm and left arm in bright, friendly letters. Uh, now, there's also something called postbiotics, which I have not heard about before, And these are non-viable bacterial products or uh, metabolites from probiotic microorganisms. And so French uh, researchers basically enrolled people, wide spectrum of age, 6 to 70 years old, and they used a a lysate, which is to say a, uh, a broken up slurry of a bacteria called vitreocilla filiformis, or a vehicle cream, 30 days, and they found a substantial improvement. Uh, the active cream significantly decreased loss of sleep from itching, which is particularly an important thing in the elderly, and it, itching in general while awake. So very exciting stuff about 
manipulating the microbiome to get better results. A study looking at gut signaling suggests potential new treatments for irritable bowel disease. So harmful inflammation in the intestine might be prevented. Uh, A one-two drug combination may offer a new way to treat inflammatory bowel disease such as Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Uh, So what's going on with these? Well, when microbe-to-cell signals get scrambled, either by genetic mutations or other causes, such as damage to the intestinal epithelium, what could cause that? Well, an aspirin pill, uh, a fishbone. You're always damaging your intestinal uh, epithelium. Parasites, uh, even good old Giardia, which is not supposed to be that bad, or uh, some of the other... Back some of the other parasites that are listed as non-pathogenic can still damage the wall. So I always check for the uh, I always check for parasites when someone comes in with inflammatory bowel disease, and I don't find them that often. But when I do, treating those parasites goes a long way to taking away their problem. Now, it turns out that old IL one is showing up in this uh, in this setting. Microbes, the bad bacteria detected by the cells, you get the, the cells release uh, release IL-1. And this increases levels of another interleukin called uh, interleukin-22. And these do something really weird. Together, they activate the uh, receptor for IL-1 plus a suite of other genes that trigger local inflammation. And again, we talked about chain reactions earlier with respect to free radicals. Well, this is what the immune chain reaction looks like. So now you've got immune cells in there firing, you know, flamethrowers at imagined bacteria and even real bacteria. But for the most part, they are, they are way over killing and they're killing the walls. They're damaging the, the intestinal walls. This leads to leaky gut. This amplifies the immune because now you've got fragments of bacteria and fragments of food crossing the damaged barrier, and we're off to the races. So recently, they're looking at uh, monoclonal antibodies against IL-2 or against the IL-1 receptor, and these are being evaluated even now in clinical trials. This could be a real game changer for people who suffer from these conditions because it'll prevent the amplification issues. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.